Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to its very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1. And we want everybody to be able to follow along. So these guys have some Bibles as they make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you. And if you just turn to the opening pages, you'll find chapter 1 there. Genesis chapter 1. In our day, we are presented with more information to process than at any other time in the history of the world. The development of various kinds of media has meant an exponential increase in the number of messages that the average person processes on a normal day. Before the days of radio and TV, internet and smartphones, the messages that you would receive would be primarily the written or spoken word from a limited number of sources. You met face-to-face with people at work or in your home or at leisure activities. You wrote and received letters, read the local newspaper, went to church where you fellowshiped with other attendees, listened to the sermon, and that was about it. The first advertising agency in America was started in 1843. Forty years later, in 1883, the Ladies' Home Journal magazine began, and it included advertising on many of its pages, and over the next few decades, many more magazines would follow suit. The first radio station was started in Pittsburgh in 1920, 1920, under 100 years ago. In 1930, that's just three years before my mother was born, the first commercial in-car radio was produced. In the 1950s, average Americans could, for the first time, consider owning a television, but you only had three stations to watch. In the 1980s, cable TV began installation in residential neighborhoods. It was in 1990, just 26 years ago, that the World Wide Web, from which we get the www of our web addresses, was invented in 1990. And its internet offshoots soon followed, including email. So now, from the moment you wake up in the morning until you go to bed, you are inundated with messages. When you get your cereal, it's advertising stuff on the box. If you go to a drive through you're confronted with multiple signs advertising various products. If you turn on the radio in your car, you'll be pummeled with ads. If you stop to get gas, there will be ads plastered on the building, some on top of the pump, perhaps a voice selling something over audio, or even a TV on top of the pump alongside the printed advertising. As you drive on the freeway, there are the ubiquitous billboards. Commercial vehicles have advertising messages painted on the sides that you'll look at as you drive. When you open your computer at work or at home, you may get all sorts of pop-up messages, including Facebook and other chats. The pages you visit will have their own ads on them and perhaps other pop-ups. You get emails coming in throughout the day. Your phone, depending on how it's set, makes a ding every time a text message arrives. And when you get home and you turn on the TV to one of the, not three, but 500 or 1,000 Literally, cable stations you could watch. It has crawls going across the bottom and messages on the sides. 
And all of that makes it very hard to tune out what's unimportant and to focus ourselves on what's really important. And if we're not careful, the messages we hear become just more blah, blah, blah to us, including the messages we hear at church. All of this is partly the reason that you see churches doing more and more outlandish things and preachers saying more and more outlandish things. It's to have their message stand out. I think it's one of the reasons our political candidates are making such provocative statements. It's all an attempt to be heard above the din, the cacophony of sound and the plethora of messages that's made possible by our technology. Now, in the midst of all of that, how does our creator get in a word edgewise? How can you sort through the myriad of communications that you receive on a daily basis? Well, I have good news for you. And it's that the most important message ever delivered can be distilled into a handful of statements. And the understanding of those statements can help you filter through all the others that you're bombarded with. Now, it will come to you as no surprise that the Bible is that most important message. But it may surprise some of you that its message can be distilled into a few statements which are all 66 books and 1,189 chapters of the Bible. Those few statements that contain God's message to man make up what is called a biblical worldview. That is the way we view the world from the Bibles, really from God's perspective. So what is a worldview? A worldview is a way of viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes sense of the data of life and the world. And the biblical worldview is found in the opening chapters of God's Word. In fact, it's really found in the first three chapters. Now, for six months of last year, many of you know, we pursued our series in the first chapters of the Bible, a series called Our Problems, God's Promises. And we took some time off from that series to do two others, the treasure of the gospel, and one on the church called Life in the Father's House. But now today, we return to Genesis. Now, because it's been six months, rather than just pick up where it is that we left off in chapter 6 back in October, I thought it might be helpful to review some of what we saw last year and to particularly emphasize the components of a biblical worldview that we saw then and we find in chapters 1 through 3. The next week, we will pick up where we left off back in October in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, and the life of Noah. Now, I want to call your attention then to the, to the outline that's inserted in your program. You should have received, I hope you received one of those on the way in. And if you'll take that out, you'll see we have a number of points there. Three main points and some sub-points. I don't think we will get to all of that today. So we may have to pick up some next week, but we will see. Let's ask God to help us then as we go to his word. Father, we thank you for this time to settle our minds and focus our attention on what's really important. This week, even today, we've been hit with messages If we've turned on the radio, on the television, 
as we've conversed, as we've stopped to get coffee. And those messages are sometimes sometimes benign, but they often contain overtones that we need to be able to recognize and sift through the worldview that you have provided for us in your world, in your word. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us as we're reminded of the components of the view of the world that we are to have. And help us to have it fixed then in our minds and in our hearts so that we then can deal with every message with which we are confronted in a way that honors you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I say in that outline, first of all, that the first thing about a biblical worldview is this, that it's about God. It's about God. And how do we know that? Well, from the very first line of the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God. The Bible at its start, at its end and in between is about God. And at the very beginning, it starts with God and it makes no attempt to prove his existence. And that's because the fact that you exist as you do is proof of his existence. Now, if you were with us last week for our Easter message, we saw some of that. We saw that we were created by God and with the innate ability to know God. And all creatures know that they are products of the creator, even if they take pains to deny or ignore that. If you want to hear some more about that, then that message, like all of our messages, is at our website, cbctrenton.com, and you can listen to that, and you can listen to that on your way to work, and you can tune out some of the other messages that are less important. Now, you might be tempted to dismiss this, this in the beginning God, and the Bible just starts with God. You might be tempted to dismiss that as just a take-it-on-faith approach that's inferior to the more scientific, objective approach. Yes, it is true, we take it on faith that God exists, But it is a reasonable faith. In fact, apart from that belief, apart from that faith, science itself is not possible. A few years ago, the New York Times published an op-ed column titled, Taking Science on Faith. It was written by a professor at Arizona State University. Paul Davies said this, Science, we are repeatedly told, is the most reliable form of knowledge about the world because it is based on testable hypotheses. Religion, by contrast, is based on faith. The problem with this neat separation is that science has its own faith-based belief system. All science proceeds on the assumption that nature is ordered in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought the universe was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends haphazardly juxtaposed. When physicists probe to a deeper level of subatomic structure, or astronomers extend the reach of their instruments, they expect to encounter additional elegant mathematical order. And so far, this faith has been justified. He says both religion and science are founded on faith, namely on belief in the existence of something outside the universe. And just as Christians claim that the world depends utterly on God for its existence, so physicists declare the universe is governed by eternal laws. Until science comes up with a testable theory of the laws of the universe, then its claims to be free of faith is manifestly bogus. You see, friends, everybody has to start somewhere. And the Bible starts 
in the beginning, God. And even if you pride yourself on being strictly objective, strictly scientific, somehow you're going to have to explain at some point where the stuff of the universe came from. Where did the matter come from? Where did it originate? And of course you cannot. So one commentator has said, at the beginning, Scripture introduces us at once to God in the essential fullness of His being. All prefatory matter is excluded. It is to God and God alone that we are brought. It is He who is the subject of the creation account. We hear Him through the divine revelation penetrating earth's silence, shining into the primordial darkness with the sole intent of creating a sphere in which he might display his sovereignty, incomparability, and power. And he makes himself known through these works of his creative will. So what is it then that these opening verses of the Bible teach us about God? The first thing I have for you in your outline is that it teaches us that he is great. That he is great. A biblical worldview is about God, and the opening chapters of the Bible teach us that this God is great. Now, some of you know that theologians often divide the character qualities of God, the attributes of God, into two major categories. Sometimes those are called God's incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. Those are the fancy terms. Incommunicable means not able to communicate, that is, not able to share. These are character qualities of God that cannot be shared with creatures. They belong to God alone. Communicable character qualities of God are those that can be emulated, can be shared by we creatures. So you have these two categories. Sometimes rather than incommunicable and communicable, they're just called great. And then I'll tell you the other one in a minute. So this category of God's attributes of his character qualities are the character qualities of God's greatness. These are the qualities of God that belong to God and God alone. And without them, he would not be God. And with them, you would be. So what are they that are taught in the opening phrases of the Bible? Well, let me give you some of these. You've got some space in your outline to write them down if you care to. But one is that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. That is, God exists in himself. Existence is part of his nature. He is self-existent. That's why Jesus could say, as the Father has life in himself, the Son also has life in himself. You see, the Father has life. And then the Father is able to create life and give life. But he has this in who he is. He is self-existent. One preacher has pointed out that Herbert Spencer a non-Christian scientist, was hailed as one worthy of many prizes in science. He died in 1903. His greatest achievement was that he discovered the categories of the knowable. That is to say, he determined that everything that exists fits into one of five categories. And this was hailed as a massive cataloging of reality. Spencer said, everything fits into one of these categories. Time, force, action, space, matter. Time, force, action, space, matter. And that was hailed by the scientific community. And in the very first verse of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, that's time. 
God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. The earth, that's matter. Everything that Herbert Spencer discovered in 1903 or anything discovered before that was in the first verse of Scripture. The Bible says that God created everything. And in saying that, the Bible gives us all the categories that exist. And he did that, as we will see, out of nothing and from nothing. With no pre-existing material. And we'll be reminded he did it in six days. God is great. And that greatness is seen in his self-existence. But also he is self-sufficient. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. That is, he is sufficient in himself. And so independent of his creation. He does not depend on anyone or anything in his creation. Now, as we go through these category, these attributes of God's greatness that belong to him alone, then with each of these, you should be saying to yourself, he is that and I'm not. He's self-existent. I came into being. He is self-sufficient and thus independent. I am absolutely dependent on God. So he is self-sufficient. He is self-sufficient, and so he needed nothing in order to create. The word created in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Hebrew word bara, in that context means he created out of nothing. And because God is self-sufficient, God did not create because he was needy, because he was lonely. Sometimes people think that. But God has always had fellowship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, the Spirit is mentioned in verse number two of Genesis chapter one. And so you have the, you have God creating and the Spirit mentioned in verse two. And later we will have the Son, God the Son revealed. So that's why the great apostle Paul could say when talking to some pagan philosophers in Athens, Greece, He could say the God who made the world and everything in it is the God of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is not dependent on anyone or anything. He is self-sufficient. God is great in that he's self-existent, self-sufficient, and here's the third thing, he's self-centered. Self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-centered. Now, if someone calls you self-centered, that's a slur. But for God, it's the only possibility. Have you ever considered God has nothing higher to aspire to than himself? And so everything that God does is self-referential. It is and must be by definition about God. And that's why the Bible says at the end of a long and beautiful explanation of 11 chapters of what the good news of the gospel is in the book of Romans. At the end of that explanation, at the end of chapter 11, he ends with this doxology, this praise from him and through him. And for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All that God allows and all that God does is ultimately for his glory, his praise, his honor. 
And so, friends, as we go through these, you should be thinking and I should be thinking, how does that apply to me? What does that mean to me if God is all that? Well, here's one thing that means to you. The fact that everything is done ultimately for God's glory, praise and honor. When something happens to you, your first question should not be why. Your first question should be how. How can I bring glory to God in this situation? Because that's what it's about. That's what everything is about. God is self-existent and self-sufficient, self-centered. And here's another one that doesn't start with self. He's omnipotent. That is, he's all-powerful. We see that in this opening chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And then as you read through chapter 1, you see God speaking. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, it's showing God's all power, that he is omnipotent, that by his word, by divine fiat, he's able to create all that is. And the Bible speaks of that fact in several places. Hebrews 11 says the universe was formed at God's command. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Again, Psalm 148, let all creation praise the name of the Lord. For at his command, they were created. What's that mean for you? What's that mean for me that God is all powerful? And you see that in the opening verses of God's word. Well, I ask you, friends, is there anything that God cannot do? Is there any command of the God who commanded the universe into existence? Is there any command that can be negotiated or ignored? This is the command. These are the commands of Almighty God. And he did it in six literal days. Spoke it into existence. Now you say, well, if he's all that, then why not just speak it into existence all at once? And I believe that God is teaching us something at the outset of the record of creation. Yes, he could have done it all instantaneously, but God is teaching us that he works methodically, setting a a pattern for us, forming and filling that which was empty and void, according to verse two in chapter one. After God's activity in creating was completed, then he decided to cease work for 24 hours. That's the seventh day. The, the famous in chapter 2, the opening verses of chapter 2, on the seventh day he rested. In fact, verse 2 of chapter 2, if you'll take a look at it, it says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had begun doing. On the seventh day he rested from all his work. Now here I'm talking about God being omnipotent and speaking everything into existence and he can do it like that effortlessly. So why does he need to rest? We can easily misunderstand what it means that God rested. We get the idea that God was tired, so he had to take a break. We get this notion partly because God later will apply this to us. 
And we know that we do indeed get tired and need a break to rejuvenate. But God needs no such thing. And so what does it mean? In fact, the Bible is very clear. The prophet Isaiah says the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. So in verse two of chapter two says God rested from all his work. The work it's referring to is what is said earlier in that verse. The work he had been doing, which is the work of creating. And so he rested from creating. It's not necessarily that God did nothing. As a matter of fact, he sustains his universe regularly, even from the beginning. And Jesus said in John chapter 5, my father is always at his work to this very day. He's always at work. And so it simply means, the word means, that's translated rested, cease and desist. And the particular work from which he ceased was the work of creation. Creation was done, completed. So God is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-centered. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. One more. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. That is, he has all authority. God has all authority to do all that he pleases. Now, the word authority, we use the word authorized. Who authorized you to do that? That means that you've been given permission to do something. You've been authorized to do it. But if you're the ultimate authority like God is, then there's no one who authorizes you to do anything. And so God need not consult anyone before he acts. He consults no one before he does what he does, and all he does is best. So it means, friends, what does it mean? God can do anything. He's all powerful. But it also means in his sovereignty that he has all authority. He doesn't need us. And he allows us to serve and to worship him. And so I don't help God out by compromising his commands. You say, well, who would say such a thing? Who would think such a thing? Well, believe me, I've heard it all. Actually, just when I think I've heard it all, this week I'll hear something else. But you know, you don't marry or even date someone who does not meet God's criterion for marriage. Which includes that that person be a follower of Jesus. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you marry in the Lord. And yet, I've heard many, many times, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take the shortcut on God's commands in order to sort of help him get where I need I need to go, get me where I need to go. In our churches, we don't resort to methods of attracting crowds because God's methods don't seem to be getting the job done adequately. You know, this whole thing about messages, man, you got to be able to dance and pop and dazzle. You want to get people to come, you got to put on a show. And that is the temptation, isn't it? And the truth of the matter is, you can fill stadiums if you put on a show. But God has the authority. He's authorized to tell us how to do it. So God's purpose is his glory. We've defined his glory many times for you. That is the display of his character. 
And God gave Israel, his chosen people, this book of Genesis. And now it's given to us to remind them that his purpose will be achieved for himself and for them, his people. Remember now that this book of Genesis and the first five books of your Bible, the books of Moses, that at the time these were written, they were the people of God were emerging from centuries of slavery in Egypt. And they were now forming a new nation. They needed the assurance of the success of this new enterprise. And Genesis 1 accomplishes that by reminding them of all the stuff that I've just reminded you about God. That he can do anything. That he has all authority. Self-sufficient, self-centered, self-existent. And so Old Testament scholar Alan Ross said this, The God who created Israel as his own people is the sovereign God who created the universe and all that is in it. The implications would be inescapable for them. Since the new nation is founded by the sovereign God of creation, the law, the customs, and the beliefs associated with it are all consonant with the plan of creation. Creation is thus the theological starting point, explaining what kind of God was establishing his theocracy and how powerful his word was in doing so. The opening chapter of the Bible teaches God has all authority. He is sovereign. One other implication of that then is he's the owner. Right? He made it. (laughs) Then he's got the deed to it. He has title to it. Everything that he has made, including you. He owns you and has right over you by right of creation. And we will see later redemption. It's about God. In a biblical worldview, it's about God first. And he's great. But I say in your outline, he is also good. He is great and he is good. That second category of God's attributes is those of his goodness. And he can share these with humanity. We can, in measure, emulate these character qualities of some character qualities of God. Things like mercy, truth, grace, faithfulness. These are all character qualities of God that can be seen in some measure in his highest creatures, humanity. We see the goodness of God. We see the mercy, the grace of God, the love of God in a number of ways in these opening chapters. One is that in chapter 1, in the way God goes about his creative activity, he teaches us that each day is preparation for the next. Remember I said earlier God could have just created it all at once, just spoken it all into existence, but he took six days. But each of those days prior to the next one, is preparation for that day. It builds on itself. Verse 10 of chapter 1, for example, tells us what God did on the third day in causing the dry ground to appear and then immediately producing vegetation. And verse 10 says, it was good. But it doesn't say it was good when God separated the waters and created the sky on day two. Now, why not? It's because on day two, the infrastructure for for sustaining life is not yet complete. But creating plants and causing them to grow, it's now life-sustaining. And that's God's purpose in creation to begin with. 
The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 45 and verse 18, he made the earth to be inhabited. So we see his goodness then in supplying for those that would inhabit the earth. Each day is preparation for the next as he supplies what is needed and he calls it then good. And each stage of God's six day creation is preparation for the next stage. There's a structure to these six days of creation that's important for us to understand. Now, remember that at the beginning of day one, immediately after the earth was called into existence, verse two says, chapter one and verse two, it was formless and empty. And God begins right away to remedy this formlessness by fashioning and shaping it. And he'll remedy the emptiness by filling it. So of these six days, days one through three are days of forming and four through six are days of filling. And both of these are to achieve God's good purpose that required remedying that formlessness and emptiness of the original creation in verse two. The forming precedes the filling and the forming is not immediate. It could be, but God has chosen to teach us discursively a bit at a time, day by day, year by year. And so days one through three are forming, days four through six are filling, and they correspond to one another in pairs. I wish I could have gotten this chart for you on the screen. Sorry, I wasn't able to. I'm not keen enough at using the technology. But you can put in pairs days one through three when God created the light on day one, the sea and sky on day two, the land and plants on day three. And then you look at four, five, and six, and they correspond to one, two, and three in filling what he formed on those days. Now hear this. God was good on day two. Even when day two was not itself good. Did you hear that? God was still good on day two. Even though on day two it was incomplete and thus not pronounced good. And you know that's true in your life. Even though, forgive the grammar, it ain't done. And it doesn't look good. God is still good in the midst of all of that. Hear this, friends. Remember this. Day two is always preparation for day three. What God is doing today is preparation for tomorrow. And because what's happening today doesn't look right and, and, and isn't right, and we can't call it can't, can't call it good because it's, it's difficult. God is working it, according to his word, together for good. And that's why the Bible says things like James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith does something good. It produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work. And that work is that you may be mature and complete. That's why I said in today's prayer, God's not doing something to us. He's doing something for us. That's always the case because he's a good God. And he shows us that in the opening pages of Scripture. Likewise, Romans chapter 5 says, We know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And you'll see this later if you read through the rest of the book of Genesis. In the story from chapters 37 through the end of the book in chapter 50, focused on Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph. 
And you remember how Joseph was sold into slavery and really left for dead by his brothers in treachery. And God worked through that whole circumstance to bring Joseph into prominence as an official in Egypt. And many years later, his brothers who assume he's dead have to go to Egypt and bow before none other than Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph says to those brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Day two may not look good. Day three is coming. God's goodness, then, is objective. God is good. But we have trouble seeing it subjectively after the entrance of sin into God's world that we all are a product of. And therefore, we not only have to look at the evidence. Hear this, friends. We have to experience the evidence. Otherwise, you won't look at what God is doing as good. You'll have no ability to do that. And that's why the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. God is good and he shows that in the opening pages of the Bible as he supplies for his creatures. And he focuses his attention right at the very beginning on the earth. Our place of inhabitants. The earth is not the center of the universe, as some have thought in history. But the earth is the center of God's attention. It's not the center of the universe, but it's the center of God's attention. In his goodness, therefore, he is focused on creation. Our creator is focused on earth, focused on earth. In fact, in chapter 1 of Genesis, earth is used nine times. Two at the very beginning to indicate earth is the focus. And then seven after verse 14 when the filling of the earth begins. Just as an aside, that means you should not get too very excited. Don't get all excited and jazzed up about aliens. And life on other planets. Remember verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When it says the heavens and the earth, that's in Hebrew what's called a merism. That's a phrase that includes everything. And you got the heavens and you got the earth. You got one spot singled out. (laughs) There's the earth and there's everything else. And when you come to chapter 2 and verse 4, the order is reversed. Instead of the heavens and the earth... Chapter 2 and verse 4 says, the earth and the heavens. Because God's focus is on this planet and where he has placed us. And chapter 1 goes on to tell us that he provides for his creation. In verse 20 of chapter 1, God said, let the water teem with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. God provides for his creation. What's that mean to you? That means if God is providing 
even for the subhuman animals, non-human creatures. If God provides for them, how much more for you who are made in his image? And that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one of, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. <laughs> now some of you are saying, hey, it's easy to number the heads, hairs on my head. It's no big trick. You know, God is, it's not saying just that God knows how many hairs are there at any given time. He does. But it's saying that not one of them falls out without his will. Just like a bird doesn't fall to the ground. When you run that brush through your head, not a hair comes out apart from the will of God. That's how sovereign God is. How in control God is. He provides for his creation. And he protects his creation. And I say he protects his creation. Have you ever heard of something called the anthropic principle? Anthropos is the Greek word for humanity, man. And the anthropic principle is this, that the earth is just perfectly situated, perfectly situated in the solar system to sustain life. If it were moved just a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit further away, life would not be possible on this planet. God has placed us perfectly to provide for us and to protect us. So God's omniscience, God's knowledge is used for us, not against us. One theologian has defined God's omniscience this way. God knows all things past, present, and future by an eternal act of intuition immediately, simultaneously, exhaustively, and truly. He knows everything. Everything about you. And everything he knows about you, he uses for you. And God, this omniscient God, who can simultaneously know everything about you and everything else, has the ability to focus his entire attention on you. Yikes. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe can focus his entire attention on me and you at the same time. Well, that gives some punch then. When Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is the God who's all powerful. This is the God who knows everything and has his his attention completely focused on you. All right, we're going to see that it's about God and his greatness and his goodness. But then we're going to see where we come into the picture with point number two. But I told you I was sure I would not get through it. So we will do that next week. Let's ask God to go with us this week as we serve him. Our Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to open your word and to focus on our attention on the message that is of most importance. The message that you have given to to us in scripture to reveal, make known yourself to us and to make your purposes for us known. Lord, help us then to develop a view of the world that's in accord with what you tell us in the opening pages of your word. And help us, Lord, this week, as we're confronted with all of the messages with which we are inundated, to process, filter all of them 
through the grid of what your word tells us about you, about ourselves, about others, and about your world. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.